Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Marvelous Joe. And I'm his twin brother, Johnny DC. And in this episode, we are going to review the 2010 film Iron Man 2, directed by Jon Favreau and starring Robert Downey Jr. It was the sequel to the highly successful Iron Man 1. Did it live up to the original? Find out later on in this episode. But the answer is no. It was better than I remember, though. Like, I remember not liking this film when it came out, but just seeing it the other day, it was better than I remembered. It's not bad. It's not great. It's good. And we'll talk all about it later on this episode. Before that, we're going to get into the comic book movie news from this past week. There wasn't much, but we did get two awesome trailers, both from the Loki Disney Plus television show and from the upcoming animated DC film Batman The Long Halloween Part 1. As always, we list our segment times in our episode description, so feel free to check out the show notes if you want to skip ahead to a particular topic. And up top, as always, if you guys have been listening to this show for a while and you enjoy our content, there are multiple things that you can do as a listener to help support this podcast. The first thing is to follow us on social media. Specifically, Instagram. We're trying to get to a thousand followers. We post stories pretty consistently if you haven't seen those. But if we could hit 1,000, we have a special treat for you guys. The second thing you could do is rate us or review us on your platform of choice, whether that be iTunes or Podchaser. And the third thing, of course, is to join us on Patreon, where you get access to tons of bonus content, including blooper reels and our monthly bracket brawls, where we pit a bunch of fictional characters against each other using our dual simulator. Yeah, this month we're finding out who the best sword wielder is. Yeah, so we're running duels against characters like Blade and Leonardo and Link and Darth Vader. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, definitely join us on Patreon, guys, if you're looking for a good time. It's where the party's at. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who shows us they care by supporting the show. We always absolutely love making this podcast for you guys and appreciate anyone who gives back. But with that out of the way, quick to the no prize. So a no prize is an award that Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award that we post on social media that I personally draw for those who we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Last week's question was in regards to the Rebellion Suicide Squad trailer that we got last week, comparing it to the previous week's Red Band trailer. We asked you guys which trailer from the film did you prefer, the Red Band or Rebellion, and why? 
And we got like two answers. <laughs> I don't know if it's because people just didn't see both versions of the trailer or what happened. But I post a question. Yeah, I can't blame you this time. Yeah, you can't. So we have one honorable mention to give out as well as one no prize winner. Our honorable mention goes to Matt Estes, who gave the answer. Hey guys, Matt Estes here. Hey, out of those uh, two trailers, I would have to say that I much prefer the uh, Black Widow trailer because DC sucks and Marvel rules. Oh shit! Dropping them truth bombs. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't quite say this is an honorable mention, more <laughs> just like a mention. Um, for one, he didn't even answer the question. <laughs> And two, your face sucks, Matt Estes. Hey, there is no need to get personal here. He was not dissing you. He was dissing DC. No, no, no. Anytime someone disses DC, I take it very, very personally. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer, Matt Estes. Love it. Keep doing you. And I'm sure your face is fine. (laughs) But the winner of this week's No Prize is Miggy Madangihin, who said... Hey guys, this is Miggy, and my preferred Suicide Squad trailer was the Rebellion trailer because of the characters' greater display of their powers, which I think is just a better introduction of these obscure characters to the general audience. And I agree. We mentioned that in the last episode, how the Rebellion trailer delved more into the characters' powers and abilities, and there was more action. The Red Band trailer was more about James Gunn's R-rated dialogue and tone. Overall, I thought the better sell was... The Rebellion trailer. And I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Congrats to Miggy Madangian for winning this week's No Prize. Uh, if you, the listener, want a chance at winning your own No Prize, stay tuned to later on this episode when we'll be asking another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news! Alright, this past week we got a look at the upcoming Disney Plus television show, Loki. This trailer, I mean, it's going to be hard to talk about because the show seems so random. Nearly anything can happen. So it seems almost pointless to conjecture what is happening at any given moment. But it looks amazing. Like when Marvel had its Investor's Day and they showed all the different trailers from the upcoming shows, I knew from then that this was going to be my most anticipated show. Really? And I think I said that during our podcast episode where we talked about that. But yeah, that randomness makes it look really interesting, and I I love the performances already. It looks so much unlike anything that I've personally ever seen, and vastly different from any of the other Marvel Disney Plus shows that have come out or will come out. It kind of reminds me of Legends of Tomorrow, but instead of, you know, the Time Masters, you're dealing with the Time Variance Authority. So you take a little bit of that, and you take a little bit of, like, the zonkiness of, like, maybe Doom Patrol, put them together, pure gold. I think that's what this will be. And that's actually a great compliment. It's definitely a centerpiece for Tom Hiddleston. Oh, yeah. Now, this is a different version of Loki than we've been used to for the past couple of his appearances. Like, this version of Loki never went through the events of Thor the Dark World or Thor Ragnarok or Avengers Infinity War. That's right. So he's much more sinister. He never really had that kind of, like, anti-hero kind of turn where we saw him fighting alongside his brother against Malekith, against Hela, and against Thanos. Basically, it turns out that he is a variant that has caused a distortion within the primary timeline, creating a bunch of branching timelines that the Time Variance Authority wants him to fix. But it's Loki. You can't really make him do anything. And this whole time, it looks like he's trying to escape them so that you got a nice cat and mouse angle going here. It is a really interesting setup that they would have him correct his own mistakes, knowing how unreliable he could be. I definitely think there's more to the story here. The setup for the TVA, though, is pretty weird. It's like 70s retro futuristic style, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the interior decoration and the room where they ask Loki to sign the paperwork with everything that he's ever said. Jeez. It was so bizarre. I really liked the gag where he's like, this is ridiculous. They print out a new sheet and have him sign that too. <laughs> it's always really cool to see how well Owen Wilson's like kind of cool, relaxed demeanor plays against Loki's kind of manic energy. You know, my favorite scene in the trailer is where, you know, Loki's saying TVA is the circus and you're the clowns. And Owen Wilson's like, I love it when you say stuff like that. It makes you sound smart. It's so patronizing. Exactly. <laughs> I really like the part where he's like, dude, I studied your entire life. You've literally stabbed people in the back 50 times. And Loki's like, and I swear I'll never do that again. <laughs> it's great. There are some interesting little like quick clips that we see of places that the TVA and Loki go. Like they're on the spaceship at one part. They're on this airplane. And another we see Loki fighting with his daggers. I just had to say how cool it is that Tom Hiddleston can do a double knife flip without even looking. And catch the knives? Yeah. That we, takes some skill. We've seen that before in trailers, but for some reason, I was just like, I need to try that. <laughs> is that why you have the bandages on your hands? Well, I, I used pens. <laughs> <laughs> There's a part where it looks like they're in this like dark castle, which looks really cool. The set design on all of this looks amazing. Oh, yeah. The budget on this show looks insane, along with the cinematography. Yeah, it's probably the most striking scene when Loki and Owen Wilson's character Mobius are in this like old historical town and there's like this destructive cloud approaching them and Loki is just like smiling at him. I was really curious as to like what the hell was going on here and people are like theorizing that they traveled back to Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius went off and destroyed the Italian city. I'm not sure if that's true. It looks like it could be the case, but they're just going all over the place with this show and I'm here for it. The release date for the show was revealed as June 11th. So we're going to get it a few weeks after Falcon and the Winter Soldier ends, which sucks because I want to see it like as soon as possible. But uh, still, it's coming soon. And just 11 days after Loki's premiere, we get to see Batman The Long Halloween Part 1, for which we just received a trailer. And I was surprised to see that the animation style is just like Superman Man of Tomorrow and the upcoming Justice Society World War II animated films. Yeah, I really liked Man of Tomorrow's animation style, so I'm glad to see that carrying forward. It makes me think that these are all part of the same continuity, which is awesome. I love the fact that they would make the Long Halloween continuity. It makes sense since it seems like they're revisiting Batman and Harvey Dent's relationship, like taking it back to the beginning. We get to see his origins turning into Two-Face after Batman and Harvey Dent try to track down the Holiday Killer. Yeah, the Long Halloween was essentially almost a sequel to Frank Miller's Batman Year One. So yeah, it's like year two for Batman, this whole thing where he kind of gets introduced to all of his different rogues. It's a great story. I love the comic. Was it a pretty long story, considering that this is going to be a two-parter? Yeah, it was a 13-issue series uh, done by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. It was pretty dense. There was a lot to it. So I'm not too surprised that they split it into two parts. And they did the same thing for the Dark Knight Returns animated film. You know, the first part kind of focused on Batman and the Joker, and the second part focused on Batman versus Superman. And you can kind of say that the death of Superman and reign of the Superman was also kind of a two-parter. Yeah, it absolutely was. Yeah. Batman is going to be voiced by Jensen Ackles of Supernatural fame. Yeah, considering that we recently saw and reviewed Batman Under the Red Hood, I kind of had a hard time hearing his Batman and not thinking of Jason Todd. I thought he did a great job just from the trailer. I didn't even hear Jensen Ackles. I just heard Batman. Really? Okay, so you didn't have the same problem. No, no, not at all. Josh Dumal is going to be Harvey Dent. And David Desmalchin is going to be the Calendar Man, which is awesome. He's like perfect for that role. The Calendar Man is so creepy. And David Desmalchin kind of has a voice for that, I guess. What's the difference between the Holiday Killer and Calendar Man? 
You'll have to see the film. There's a difference between the two. Okay. Calendar Man is a villain that's locked up in Arkham Asylum while the holiday killings are going on. So Batman goes to him to try and find out who is the real killer. Oh, so is that the guy in the prison cell in this trailer? Because I thought that was Lex Luthor. No, yeah, that was the Calendar Man. You could tell because he has like these Roman numerals tattooed on his head. Okay. Kind of like Zaz, who like etches tallies into his skin. Not really. Okay. Catwoman is voiced by Naya Rivera, and this was actually the last work that she did before she died. And that, that was a tragic story. Yeah, her passing was really sad and unfortunate, but she does seem like she had a great Catwoman voice. Yeah, totally. I love the look they went with for this film. Actually, I love all of the different character designs. I love this animation style a lot because it's so different for Bruce Timm's style, which made all the characters sort of look the same. Like, there were only, like, five-figure variants. With this style, everyone sort of has a different, like, facial structure and body structure. It's pretty awesome. I really love seeing Batman stories where a lot of his rogues gallery take part. Kind of like Batman Hush. That was a great movie. This one looks pretty good, too. Yeah, yeah, this is sort of like the ultimate story if you want to see all of Batman's rogues. Even more so than Hush. Oh, wow. Now, in the comics, it took a year for the original readers to find out what was going on. I really hope they don't make us wait that long for part two, because they don't have a release date for that yet. Wait, actually, I'm reading right here. It's going to be released in fall 2021. So perfect. There you go. The whole trailer is really mysterious and has a lot of quick cuts and stuff like that. But that's the whole point, because this whole thing is like a year-long mystery. And I, I loved it. The trailer totally sold me. And I'm definitely looking forward to this film. But that brings us to our question of the week. Since so few of you answered our last question about which trailer you preferred, we're going to double down on you. <laughs> this time we're asking, what trailer did you prefer? Loki's official trailer 2 or the first official trailer for Batman The Long Halloween Part 1. They both come out around the same time. Based on these trailers, which one gets you more hyped? To answer, visit dynamicduel.com and click on the red microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner, which will prompt you to record us a voicemail. Your message can be up to 30 seconds long, and don't forget to leave your name in case we include you on the podcast. We'll pick our favorite answer and draw that person a Dynamic Duel No Prize that we'll post to social media. Be sure to answer before April 17th. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But that does it for all the news for this episode. So let's go ahead and get into our main event where we review the 2010 film Iron Man 2. All 
right, Iron Man 2. The film came out in 2010 and was directed by Jon Favreau and stars Robert Downey Jr., both men returning from the incredible first film. Iron Man 1 was a huge success, both financially and critically, and the sequel really tried to recapture that magic. It didn't quite do that despite its best efforts due to its weaker story beats, clunky dialogue, and similarly anticlimactic villain. Now, if you've never seen the film before, we want to give you a heads up at the top of this review that this will be a spoiler review, so you should definitely check it out. I would recommend it. Odds are you have. It's been like 11 years. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen this movie, where have you been? But definitely check it out because as all of our reviews do, we talk about the whole film. Now, while the first film's narrative focused on responsibility and inventiveness, the main theme of Iron Man 2 was legacy. With great responsibility comes great legacy. In this movie, Tony Stark is dying due to the palladium in his chest's arc reactor, putting toxins in his bloodstream. Since he knows he's about to die, he starts making arrangements, including setting up the Stark Expo for the next generation of geniuses, giving his company, Stark Industries, to his former assistant Pepper Potts, and giving his spare armor, the Mark II, to his friend James Rhodes. He struggles with his mortality in the worst way possible, reverting to his old, irresponsible self from the beginning of the first film, except now the national spotlight is on him from politicians looking to confiscate the Iron Man armor. And to top it off, he contends with the villain Whiplash, who felt that the arc reactor technology was his father's, and Tony learns of the legacy his own father left him to perfect the arc reactor. In concept, there's actually a lot of great story stuff here. Maybe too much? Because in reality, it wasn't quite executed as well as it could have been, as well as it should have been, as it kind of juggles its way along into the final act of the film. Yeah, all of the different storylines we have going on in this film totally makes sense as a continuation of the storylines established in the first film. They're very interesting. But when you combine that with trying to introduce characters like Black Widow and setting up the Avengers at the very end, it gets a little clunky. Yeah, it definitely does. There's a lot that the story has to contend with, and it doesn't quite flow in a way that feels right. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I liked this film a lot more seeing it this past week than when I first saw it in theaters. I think if you got rid of characters like Black Widow, Nick Fury, the whole Avengers setup, this film would have flowed a lot better. Yeah, you might be right. The main issue that I have with the film is that when the legacy theme resolves, when Tony synthesizes the new element that can substitute Palladium, The key to the discovery was, preposterously, hidden by Howard Stark in the architectural design of the Stark Expo's layout. And it raises a lot of questions like, how did Howard know Tony would revisit the arc reactor technology and revisit the Stark Expo? I mean, like, the arc reactor technology seemed to be doing fine as it was, especially when Tony was able to miniaturize it to power his suit. So... Like, why would the arc reactor need the new element unless Howard predicted that someone would be putting it in their body and it would poison them? Yeah, it's all very convenient. Yeah. His father said that the new arc reactor was going to change the world and kickstart an energy race that would dwarf the arms race. But it's like, no. That didn't happen. (laughs) I guess Tony did use repulsor tech to power the Avengers Tower and some shield stuff, but we literally never hear about it otherwise outside of the context of the Iron Man armor. Now, in the movie's overall runtime, this new arc reactor stuff takes up only a fraction of the second act, but it is the key moment of the film. It solves the hero's dilemma and pushes forward the story toward the final confrontation. And having this far-fetched plot hole here in the story, it does sink a lot of the film. Like, in this moment, we hear Howard tell Tony he's his greatest creation, and it's never addressed again. 
And we have Tony visit Pepper's office with him trying to tell her that he needs her. Why? Where did that come from? There's a lot here in this section of the story that feels missing and kind of haphazardly put together. I would definitely say that there were two halves to the story. You know, there's a pretty definitive cut halfway through where it literally fades to black and then it kind of picks up with Iron Man in the donut, right? Yeah. I definitely think the first half was stronger than the second half. Well, I don't know entirely about that because despite the fact the film clumsily works its way into the third act, I think that's where the movie really shines in the last part because it has the incredible action scene with Iron Man and War Machine teaming up in the best way possible against some robotic drones and the introduction of Black Widow fighting Justin Hammer's security. Both of those scenes were so damn fun and enjoyable. I felt like standing up in my seat and like fist pumping the air when Stark and Rhodey's helmets closed and they started like blasting the shit out of those drones. Like, it brought a tear to my eye. It was so perfect. It was everything you wanted to see in an Iron Man movie. The Black Widow scene where she, like, fucking kneecapped that dude and then strung up the other, electrocuted that one guy, and then maced the guy at the end. It was a great introduction to the action hero that Black Widow is. I thought the action was pretty great in this movie overall. Like, those two scenes and the suitcase armor scene on the Monaco Speedway, that generated a lot of goodwill for me to overlook a lot of the movie's flaws and still really enjoy and be entertained by the movie. Yeah, the action was pretty cool. I think that's what really makes these Iron Man movies for sure. Yeah, the Iron Man armor is just so flashy. I want a suit of armor. If I don't have a suit of armor before I die, I'm gonna be fucking pissed. Yeah, it's like the same thing with me and like the Batmobile. Eh, no one cares about that. Oh yeah, I'm gonna drive around in my car. Iron Man can like fucking fly. Oh, the Batmobile has ejector seats, dude. Don't worry about that. Okay. I'm getting where I need to go. (laughs) I remember watching this movie for the first time and thinking, really, that's how they're going to adapt Demon in the Bottle? But watching it again, I actually thought it was a pretty good adaptation of it. Well, I mean, it wasn't like a faithful adaptation. It was about as faithful as the studio could probably get. Because in the comics, the story involves Tony sinking into alcoholism, losing his company to Obadiah Stane, and Rhodey taking over the role of Iron Man. And it led to like Tony getting sober, and he started a new company, and he reclaimed Iron Man and created a new suit of armor, the War Machine armor, for Rhodey. It was a great story, but that was essentially a story about addiction. And Marvel Studios... I don't think really wanted to go down that route, even though I I do think it would have been pretty compelling seeing as Robert Downey Jr. used to be a former addict, but uh, maybe it would have hit too close to home for Downey um, and definitely wouldn't have been marketable to families. So like his debauchery stemmed more from his like hedonistic lifestyle, which in this film kind of stemmed from him facing his own mortality as opposed to, you know, being an addict. I do think this was probably about as well as they could have adapted that whole Demon in the Bottle storyline. One of the biggest positives for this movie, I think, was its cast. From the leading roles to the supporting characters, you know, you have greats like Mickey Rourke, Don Cheadle, Sam Rockwell is amazing. They all do a lot, I think, to save what's wrong with this film. And let's discuss them in the character breakdown. So Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, was played by Robert Downey Jr. I think it's been really interesting to revisit these films and watch the course of Tony Stark's character arc. The events of the Avengers films and Iron Man 3 did a lot to mature him. But here it was fun to see him again as like the free-willing Tony Stark, you know, being his lovable cocky self. Of course, it is a regression here due to the fact that he's secretly dying. But I do miss this less serious Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. makes him so much fun to watch. Yeah, this film came out prior to Disney's acquisition of Marvel. Yeah. So I feel like Robert Downey Jr. got away with some of the more like off-color jokes that he could have under a Disney banner. Like what? 
like when they're talking about how the reporter did a spread on him and oh. she wrote a story too. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He did make the hide the zucchini joke later on in Avengers Age of Ultron. So I think Disney would have let that slide for sure. But he definitely did get more tame in later films. I do think that Robert Downey Jr. had one of the most touching moments of his entire Iron Man performance in this film when his father tells him that he was his greatest creation and his mouth just kind of drops. You know, it was quick and it was never addressed again, but I do think that you really felt what he was going through in that moment because Tony Stark has always been a character who has sought the approval of his father. And that aspect of the character got a lot of closure within Endgame when he went back in the past and spoke to Howard. Right. I always think mortality is a really interesting theme, especially for superheroes to deal with. And seeing how Tony Stark was dealing with his own mortality, he could have done something about it. He could have told someone, but he didn't because, you know, he thought he was invincible in this yeah. armor. Yeah, he thought that he would be the smartest guy to solve this and that no one else could. And in the end, he was right because he was able to cure his condition by synthesizing the new element. But also he isolated himself. You know, he has a support system in Pepper and Rhodey, and he chose not to, I guess, burden them with the knowledge of his upcoming death. But it was selfish of him to do that. And I think at the end, he learned the lesson that it is better to work with others. You know, he ends up giving Rhodey the War Machine armor, and they team up to win the day, and he ends up ultimately confessing his love for Pepper Potts. Right, right. He explicitly says to Rhodey when they first fight in his house that he doesn't need a sidekick. And by the end of the film, he's like, I need a sidekick. Let's do a, you know, air high five. Yeah, and you could also say that maybe Tony Stark was keeping his condition a secret because politicians were trying to take his armor, and he probably felt that if they knew that he was about to die, they might have an easier time confiscating his work. Yeah, I can see that. He probably felt it was better to give to someone he trusted in Rhodey. Let's talk about Ivan Vanko, a.k.a. Whiplash, who was played by Mickey Rourke. Now, in the first film, quite a bit of Tony Stark's dialogue was improvised on the spot by Robert Downey Jr., who had a ton of creative input on his character. Here, it seems like they gave those same liberties to others as well, trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle. But here's the thing. We learn in this film that not everyone can do it like Robert Downey Jr. Turns out that guy is kind of a creative genius with tremendous instincts on what works and what doesn't. Mickey Rourke doesn't really have those instincts, it looks like. No, I think very few people do. Sam Rockwell definitely does. Ryan Reynolds it seemed like Mickey Rourke was going for a true, like, dramatic performance. Like he's trying to win a fucking Oscar or something. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it just came across as boring. Yeah, I mean, like, Mickey Rourke, he is a genius actor in his own right, but probably with what's on the page. It was like here he was trying to out-eccentric Robert Downey Jr., and, like, you hear stories about the production where he was, like, insistent on just being in his underwear during Stark's visit to the jail and the whole bird thing. Like, Mickey Rourke was packing on just so many layers trying to make his character seem interesting, but sometimes less is more. Stripped down doesn't necessarily mean one-dimensional, and I think Rourke's character kind of lost itself in his weirdness. So the underwear and the bird thing was his idea? Yeah. Why? Layers, man. Whiplash is like ogres. Onions. Which are, are like ogres. Okay. <laughs> it's no surprise, like, he's gone later on to bash Marvel. They're probably like, dude, this guy's fucking weird. Let's not work with him again. <laughs> yeah, it's like he was trying to be the star of the show. Like, a lot of his stuff apparently got cut, but you know what? He had quite a bit of screen time in this film, as much as you would give any other villain, you know? And he just did less with that. Just trying to be so mysterious, I guess. And it's weird, because, like, Mickey Rourke is a really good actor, 
I, I really liked his his role as Marv in the Sin City films and as the wrestler. Like those were really good performances. He just wasn't cut out, I think, for this blockbuster material. I mean, it's possible he has had more success in indie films. Now, it's my understanding that the character of Whiplash in this film is like an amalgamation of several Iron Man villains. Yeah, Whiplash and Crimson Dynamo. Ivan Vanko is not a character from the comics. His father, Anton Vanko, is the Russian villain known as Crimson Dynamo, who's like the Russian Iron Man. A lot of Iron Man's villains are like guys in armor, and I think the film was trying to present a different villain from the Ironmonger from the first film. Right. They didn't want to do just another suit. And yet they did. Yeah, they kind of did toward the end. Whiplash, though, is definitely unique with his weapons. Crimson Dynamo, we should totally do a duel between him and Rocket Red. Rocket Red's from DC? Yeah, I mentioned him in my Kilowog backstory a few episodes ago. Okay. Oh, when Kilowog was, like, living in Russia. Yeah, he's essentially uh, a Russian Iron Man, exactly like Crimson Dynamo. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll do that down the line. I think it would almost be cooler to do a Whiplash duel. Just because Whiplash is so unique, although, you know, I guess you could say that he's a lot like Omega Red with his weapon set, and Omega Red is definitely the more interesting character. I don't know. But I like the way they portrayed Whiplash's powers in this movie. I thought transferring the arc reactor power into these ropes could be used in a a variety of interesting ways. I just don't think they explored that enough. Like, he was, frankly, too easy to beat both of the times Iron Man fought him. Yeah, way too fucking easy. I mean, come on. Yeah, the first time they fought, Iron Man was pretty much just able to tank the whip's energy, you know? Exactly. They're over here slashing through, like, race cars and stuff like that, and yet it doesn't just cut right through Iron Man's armor. It was inconsistent. Yeah, that was a mistake. And then at the end, Whiplash was actually wiping the floor with Iron Man and War Machine until they shot repulsors at each other, and he was over in one shot, and then he killed himself. Kind of ridiculous. It was a little weak. Let's move on to James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine, played by Don Cheadle. Now, Don Cheadle, I think, is the anti-Mickey Rourke. Like, he didn't come to compete with Robert Downey Jr. It didn't seem like there was any ego involved. He was understated, complimentary to the lead, and just really cool, I think. From, like, the laid-back way he addressed the Senate committee to the War Machine weapons scene when they're equipping it. When he finally donned the armor and fought alongside Tony... That, to me, was the ultimate Iron Man moment. I loved War Machine in this movie so much. They did an even better job with him than I thought they were going to, given the tease from the previous film. Yeah, War Machine definitely has a good look, and I thought Don Cheadle did a great job in the suit and out of the suit. I do think that Don Cheadle showed in later films that he is capable of going toe-to-toe with Robert Downey Jr. when it comes to improvisation. Mm-hmm, yeah. He does a much better roadie than I think Terrence Howard did. I don't think he played all too dissimilar of a roadie than Terrence Howard. At least in this film. Yeah. He definitely grew to become his own character. But I do think that Terrence Howard is also a great actor, and I think he did a great job as roadie in the first film. I don't think he would have done anything too terribly different from what Don Cheadle did in this movie. And I think that Terrence Howard and Robert Downey Jr. had great chemistry. But again, so do Don Cheadle and Robert Downey Jr. So I can't quite say I have a preference between the two actors. I do think it was unfortunate that the recast happened. But I'm also happy it happened because Don Cheadle's fucking great, you know, in everything that he does and all the performances I've ever seen him in. He's every bit as brilliant an actor as Robert Downey Jr. And I really can't wait to see him lead his own show in Armor Wars coming up on Disney+. Plus. I think that's going to be amazing. And they announced that it also stars Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell. Another brilliant actor. That's going to be a really fun show. 
I'm so sad that Tony Stark died in the MCU because I loved all of the moments between Tony Stark and Justin Hammer. Yeah. They were fantastic. Yeah, so good. Like, Justin Hammer actually does manage to play off of Tony Stark's eccentricities in a hilarious way because he's a smart villain, but he's also just so, like, incompetent. <laughs> like, he's a wannabe, you know? He's mostly comic relief here, but his character does have a bit of malice in him. You see it in little spurts. Well, Tony Stark keeps stealing his thunder. Yeah, and he's totally driven by jealousy. But since this movie... Justin Hammer's kind of been in the wings off to the side in prison. Like he did show up in the All Hail the King one shot, but I really can't wait for him to get his time to shine as the lead villain in Armor Wars. I definitely think Justin Hammer was more than just a one and done villain. Definitely glad he's returning. I kind of hope that with S.H.I.E.L.D. still gone in the MCU, that Justin Hammer sets up the Hammer organization as kind of a rival to S.W.O.R.D. to be the new tech and espionage force in the world. Is Hammer an acronym like S.H.I.E.L.D. and S.W.O.R.D.? Uh... Yes and no. <laughs> Hammer was set up by Norman Osborn in the comic books after the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D. during the Dark Reign storyline. Huh. Hammer was supposed to stand for something, but they never quite figured out what it stood for. They just wanted the name Hammer, and then Norman Osborn was like, make an acronym for it, and then they never did. Really? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. But I always thought it would make more sense for Justin Hammer to be in charge of that uh, as opposed to Norman Osborn, given that they haven't introduced Norman Osborn in the MCU yet. Yeah, that makes total sense. Let's move on to Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow, who's played by Scarlett Johansson. I've always had mixed feelings about Scarlett Johansson in this role, and I think most of my negativity possibly stems from this film. In this movie, her role is to monitor Stark and his debilitation on behalf of S.H.I.E.L.D., but she acts like she's trying to seduce him. Yeah. Like, when they're getting ready for his party, she's like, is that dirty enough for you? And I do whatever I wanted with whoever I wanted. It doesn't make sense given her mission, you know? And fortunately, he doesn't really go for it because apparently he's vying for Pepper Potts. So Natasha seems like needlessly seductive. I Really, I think she's just there to seduce the audience. Exactly. And far be it from me to say they made Scarlett Johansson too sexy, <laughs> but it does seem gratuitous. Absolutely. And therefore, Natasha Romanoff seems kind of shallow in this film. Thankfully, they gave her the badass action scene, you know, to kind of compensate for that. And, they, you know, they developed her character more in the Avengers films. But this Black Widow, I think, in this movie is nearly unrecognizable from the Natasha we have today. And the version that we see in the upcoming solo Black Widow movie is definitely never going to say, is that dirty enough for you? Or, like, take off her dress in the back seat in front of, like... That's fine. I don't mind that. <laughs> I'm surprised by Marvel, actually, with this interpretation of the character. It seems so exploitive and reductive. Absolutely. I don't think you could get away with that today. No, 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 no. She was very one-dimensional. Absolutely. Reductive is the best term. Because Natasha Romanoff is so much more than just eye candy. You know what's funny, though? When I saw this movie in the theater for the first time... And that shot of Scarlett Johansson ducking underneath the boxing ropes to get into the ring, that yeah. close-up on her face. Right. When that happened, the theater was completely silent because we're all watching the movie. But one guy in the theater was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> the entire theater started erupting in laughter because of this guy <laughs> pretty much creamed his jeans while watching the movie. That's disgusting. <laughs> it was hilarious. But every time I see this movie, I think of that moment when everybody laughed. It was great. Let's move on to Pepper Potts, who was played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, I actually really liked Gwyneth Paltrow's Pepper Potts from the first movie, 
because I think she and Robert Downey Jr. had amazing, fantastic chemistry, despite not being romantic interests explicitly in that film. Since that movie, I haven't really liked her character. Really? I thought she was great in this film. I mean, in, to me, it just never really made sense that Tony Stark and her would end up together because she was always more like his mom than his partner. Well, I mean, yeah, he's being reckless and immature, and someone has to be a foil to that. Someone has to put him in his place. I guess but, really everyone was a foil to that. Yeah. But would you consider that foil viably? I think so. I mean, opposites attract. Why not? To me, it came out of nowhere when they kissed at the end. That is true. It did. There, there wasn't a whole lot of lead up. Like they were bickering and then he kissed her and it was like, what? Like I wasn't feeling it. And even Rhodey in that scene, he was like, it was awkward. Looks like two seals fighting over a grape. I felt that. I didn't get that joke. Well, imagine two seals fighting over a grape. Yeah, it doesn't really work. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it was funny. I'm not really too familiar with Pepper Potts, like, from the comics or anything like that. To me, I thought her character was completely justified and made sense in this film. And I still thought she held her own against, you know, Robert Downey Jr. performance-wise. Gwyneth Paltrow, in her own right, is, you know, fairly eccentric. She sells a candle that smells like her vagina, yeah. so... Uh, <laughs> who the fuck would buy that? Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, she is a talented actress, for sure. I'm not denying that. But the romance thing kind of just, I don't know, I can't get over it. Maybe it's because I'm too close to it. Like, I know that Pepper Potts in the comics married Happy Hogan. What? Yeah. They really never went down that road with this franchise. I guess they just needed some kind of romantic interest for Tony Stark in these films. So why not Pepper Potts? Yeah, like I said, they have great chemistry, so makes sense. The last character I want to talk about is Nick Fury who was played by Samuel L. Jackson. Now, he had a small role in this movie, but it was here that he made his first appearance as the character outside of the end credit stinger from the first film. At the time, when I watched this film, his version of Nick Fury struck me as too laid back for the head of an international spy organization. Yeah, more Sam Jackson and less Nick Fury. Exactly, yeah. But as the films progressed, you know, he became the more serious, authoritative, and intellectual Nick Fury we know and love from the comics. This version of the character was based on the ultimate Nick Fury from the Ultimates comics, whose likeness was actually based on Samuel L. Jackson. So him playing the role in this film was literally perfect casting. And I mean, Nick Fury Jr. in the comics right now kind of looks like Sam Jackson. Yeah, that's true. Nick Fury Jr. is the son of the original Nick Fury, who was the primary version of the character within the Marvel Comics universe, dating back to Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. He had a son, Nick Fury Jr., who's filling that Nick Fury role within the comics now, which I like. He's a bad mother. Shut your mouth. Well, I'm just talking about Nick Fury. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yep. Sam Jackson also played Shaft. All right, that's all the characters. Let's go ahead and get into our story highlights. So at the beginning of the film, we see Anton Vanko die as Tony Stark announces himself as Iron Man. Ivan Vanko grieves his father and then builds an arc reactor, which I thought was actually a fantastic setup for the premise of this film. Right, because in the first film, we see how hard it is and how difficult it is for the Stark scientists to build their own version of the arc reactor. Yeah, so in order to build one, you have to be a pretty fucking brilliant guy. It didn't hurt that he had the blueprints for it, though. Fair. But that was, of course, for the large version, not the miniaturized version. True, true, true. From there, we go to the Stark Expo, which Tony Stark is putting on as a way to introduce new products and inventions to the world as part of his legacy that he's going to leave because he's secretly dying due to his blood toxicity from the palladium in his chest. I thought it was a really fun reintroduction to Tony Stark from the first film. Just so much pomp and pop and flashiness. Just everything we love about the character. 
from there, we learn more about Stark's mortality. He ends up giving his company to Pepper Potts. I really want to have a workroom like Tony Stark has with all those holograms around. Yeah, the way he's able to use them. Yeah, I would just be playing mini games all day. <laughs> just trash one of your projects and like throw it at the wall. It's like, boom, two points. Yeah, that was cool. We meet Natalie Rushman, who is the notary overseeing the signing over of the company to Pepper Potts. And Tony Stark's like, I want one. I'm going to make her my assistant. And really, that's kind of where the seduction could have ended. Like, I could see why she was being sexy to get in as Stark's assistant in order to monitor him more closely. But after that, you know, it was just gratuitous. It didn't make sense. From there, we go to the Monaco Historic Grand Prix, where in his impulsiveness, Tony Stark decides to race one of the Grand Prix cars. That's crazy. I mean, it was probably on his bucket list or something. But enter Whiplash, who comes onto the scene and just creates havoc blowing up the cars, nearly killing Tony Stark before he gets a hold of his suitcase armor, which I thought was an amazing Easter egg from the suitcase armor in the comics. Now, there, it was an actual suitcase that the armor was actually stored in. It wasn't like this, like, Transformer type of thing. I really like the way they interpreted it for this film. And the fact that it was, like, the Silver Centurion armor, too. So much fan service. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely one of Tony Stark's cooler suits. And it was a shame to see it go so quickly. Yeah, a lot of his armor mechanisms were like one and done, you know, but it was also cool that he was constantly like evolving that. I do not get how Pepper and Happy survived this whole thing because Whiplash was just shredding that car. One of those two should have been decapitated. Yeah, I don't get how Whiplash was able to survive being slammed into the side barricade. Now, I know those things have some give in case the cars crash into them, so they're not entirely solid, but he was freaking crushed by that car. Yeah, how are his legs not, like, shattered? Yeah, didn't make sense. But eventually Iron Man defeats Whiplash, and Whiplash goes to jail. Tony Stark visits him in jail and learns that Whiplash's goal was not necessarily to kill Tony Stark, but to show the world that he was not invincible. Which was kind of awesome. It's much more sinister of motivation than just to outright kill him. He's trying to systematically break the character down in a larger way because he is so much of a celebrity. So being able to take down his image first was really clever. Yeah. And then he ends up teaming with Justin Hammer, who breaks Ivan out of jail and is like, go after his legacy. Now, I've seen a lot of cool, like, breaking out of jail scenes. This has to be one of the more lame ones, I feel like. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he just kind of like walked out of his cell. It blew up and then there were like people there to bag him and kidnap him. Exactly. Like, why not just give him the fucking key? (laughs) They did give him the fucking key. (laughs) Like, I just saw a prison escape scene from The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That was so much better than what they did here. That's true, actually. That was really well done. In really just about the same amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So after Justin Hammer and Whiplash team up, in a pretty funny scene, we go to Stark's birthday party, where he gets too drunk in the Iron Man armor. He does make some funny jokes, like where he pisses the armor. (laughs) That was great. It makes total sense that it would operate kind of like how astronauts are able to pee in their suits, you know? And then it gets filtered. But he just does it in front of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. So great. But uh, he does get very irresponsible with the suit, accidentally discharging his repulsors and playing skeet with champagne bottles and stuff like that. Yeah, as much as he was trying to tell the Senate that it wasn't a weapon, it is. The thing's like a lethal weapon. And the fact that he's just firing rounds in the middle of a party around everyone, I'm surprised no one got hurt. Speaking of the Senate scene, I kind of skipped over that. What did you think of that? I thought it was kind of hilarious to see how far back like all of the other different countries were in developing their own Stark armor, especially the footage of Justin Hammer trying to create his own. Yeah, he's like, and turn, and the guy like snaps his spine, and he's like, oh, shit, oh, shit. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he was like, I want to point out that the pilot survived that test. <laughs> that was also the uh, introduction of Don Cheadle as Rhodey. Yeah. And I like how he kind of addressed it in the line where he's like, I'm here. Get over it. Let's move on. Yeah. Real quick. Really effective. Yeah. And the whole Senate scene in general, I thought, made a lot of sense. It felt very, like, real world. Mm-hmm. Like, if this Iron Man armor did exist, the U.S. government probably would try to confiscate it for their own purposes. Yeah, it was a precursor to the Accords from Captain America's Civil War. So it's surprising to see how much Tony Stark had changed in between these two films, where basically in this movie, he's like, you can't have the armor. You know, I don't work for you. I privatized world security. And then in the later film, he was so humbled by the Ultron incident and going through the wormhole and stuff like that, he completely 180s and is like, we should be held accountable. I thought Larry Sanders gave a great performance as like the snooty senator. Yeah, he was funny. Like when he was like, fuck you, Stark. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> exactly. And of course, we learned later on that he's a Hydra agent. Yeah. That was cool. That yeah. Was, that was interesting. Yep. So at the end of the party scene, Rhodey dons the Mark II armor in an attempt to put a stop to Tony Stark's antics, and they fight, which was a pretty cool scene. It was really cool seeing the Mark II armor versus the Iron Man armor, just in their different, like, sheens and how they seem to be so equal. Like, when they got into that little punching contest, it just showed how futile it was to punch Iron Man. (laughs) I thought that was great. The suit was indestructible, so they were able to do literally anything and everything to each other without really harming each other until it came down to the repulsor blasts. I knew right when I saw that happen that that was going to play a factor in the final battle. I didn't realize it was going to play as big a factor as it did, Yeah, but I, I saw that coming. I thought that was a great setup. So Rhodey leaves with the armor, and the morning after, Tony Stark is approached by Nick Fury, who reveals that they know about his palladium condition and that he should be able to fix it if he studies his father's and Anton Vanko's research. Because as it turns out, Howard and Anton Vanko built the arc reactor together, and Anton tried to sell it secretly, Howard found out and had him deported to Russia, where he was bitter ever since. Fury encourages Tony Stark to solve the riddle of his heart, which he begins by viewing the notes and tapes of his father, where he learns that his father really did love him. And it was in those videos where Howard Stark, you know, essentially points to his diorama and says, you know, this is the key to our future, cluing Tony in to the fact that he has a hidden design within this model. Right. Meanwhile, War Machine is getting his armor armed by Justin Hammer. Fucking love this scene where Don Cheadle's like, what are you going to do for me? And Sam Rockwell pulls out all these guns. The way he describes them is just done so well, especially the way he describes the ex-wife was so fantastic. And the badass line at the end where Don Cheadle's like, I want all of it. I was like, yes, yes. Like the minigun, all those weapons. I knew it was going to be so great. Yeah, I remember seeing that moment in the trailer. I was like, that's that's cool. That's War Machine. Hell yeah, it is. After a visit to Pepper Potts, Tony Stark realizes that the new element that he needs is hidden within the architectural design of the Stark Expo. So he uses the diorama of the grounds to model the new element, and then he synthesizes it using a particle accelerator in his basement. Now, I don't know how new elements are synthesized. I don't know if you use particle accelerators and things like that, but uh, sure, you know, I'll take the movie at its word. I just love it when Tony Stark was like, Do you see that here? It kind of looks like an atom. I was like, no, it fucking doesn't. (laughs) What are you talking about? Those hologram scenes are always pretty cool, though. I wish they would have said what the element was. Like, did he recreate, like, vibranium or something like that? No, it wasn't vibranium, but they never say what the element is. Starkium. Starkium? Yeah, Yeah. that sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) From there, Tony Stark gets a threatening call from Ivan Vanko. So he flies over to the Stark Expo, where Justin Hammer is giving his presentation of the new drones that Whiplash created for him which I thought was actually a pretty cool presentation. Sam Rockwell knows how to dance. 
That dude has the most amazing footwork I've ever seen in my damn life. I want to learn how to do that. It was impressive. He's one of my favorite actors, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. When Iron Man arrives, the drones go haywire and they start attacking him and everybody across the expo. The War Machine armor is also compromised given that it was given a software upgrade by Hammer Industries. So War Machine and the drones chase Iron Man through the skies. And young Peter Parker makes an appearance, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly the kid that is wearing the Iron Man mask is Peter Parker and that was kind of confirmed to be canon, I guess, by Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. And because they say it is, we'll just say it is. Sure, yeah. Meanwhile, Black Widow is breaking into Hammer Industries to get Ivan Vanko, and she kicks ass, and she manages to hack into War Machine's suit and erase the problematic virus. With War Machine's virus gone, he can control the suit again, and the two team up in, again, the greatest Iron Man action scene of all time, when he's back-to-back with War Machine, and they're just taking it to the drones, tearing them apart like they were nothing. Whiplash flies in, And, you know, they fight for approximately 15 seconds before they do the repulsor trick and it ends almost right away. That was real disappointing. I actually thought the drone fight was better than the end whiplash fight. Ivan Vanko sets a charge to detonate all of his drones that are still remaining, including himself. And so Tony has to go save Pepper, who's standing next to one of these drones. He saves her, flies her up to a rooftop, and then professes his romantic feelings for her. From there, we go to a scene between Tony Stark and Nick Fury, where we learn that Iron Man is not going to be part of the Avengers team, but he's just going to be used as a consultant, which at the time I was really disappointed by. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Iron Man has to be part of the Avengers. What the hell are they doing? It never really led anywhere. That's not true. Uh, It led to the end credit scene of The Incredible Hulk where they used Robert Downey Jr. as the consultant to offend General Ross into not using Emil Blonsky, a.k.a. the Abomination, as an Avengers member. I don't remember that. That was explained in the one-shot called The Consultant. That was their way of rationalizing why it was Tony Stark that appeared in The Incredible Hulk as opposed to anyone else. I didn't even know that was a one-shot. I've never heard of that. Oh, you should watch it. Yeah, it's called The Consultant. I'll show it to you. Is it starring Tony Stark? No, it actually stars Phil Coulson. Okay. Yeah. Tony Stark agrees to be the consultant and waives his retainer fee if Senator Stern gives him and Rhodey their medals for their actions at the expo. And I love how he poked Tony Stark <laughs> with the pen. It was like, yes. it's amazing how annoying a little prick can be. <laughs> Such a great dig. Such a great line. And that's the end of the movie. Uh, after the credits, we got our very first look at Mjolnir, the Hammer of Thor. And I remember seeing the design of that hammer for the first time in this movie and just being blown away. It looked like how it did in the comics, but also slightly futuristic. I was so excited when I saw that shot of Thor's hammer. And it was also cool how in the Nick Fury, Tony Stark scene, we also got to see that snippet of footage from the Incredible Hulk movie. So it was like everything was starting to come together for the Avengers toward the end of this movie. We also saw like the prototype Captain America shield in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Which Tony Stark hilariously used just to <laughs> to prop up and level that particle accelerator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you know what that was a reference to? The Captain America shield in that scene? In the first movie, the visual effects artists snuck in a prototype Captain America shield in the background scene of Tony Stark's lab when he was removing his armor. So they kind of referenced that gag and used it as an Easter egg in this movie. Huh. I just remember being so excited walking out of this movie, not just by what I had seen. You know, those end action scenes were great. The flaws of the movie didn't really register with me until I really thought about the film later. But I also just remember being really thrilled about the upcoming films to come. 
The film was really fun. It obviously does have some issues that prevent it from being great, but to me, the movie provided enough entertainment, especially through its cast, especially Robert Downey Jr., and it provided enough great action and did a great job of teasing what was to come for the MCU. So I give it three and a half stars. I think I would have given it three stars the first time I saw this, but watching it again, you're right. It was a lot of fun, and it's kind of great going back seeing the early stages of the MCU and how everything was coming together. So yeah, I agree. 3.5 stars is is a good score. That does it for this review. Let us know what you thought about the movie by writing to us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com or by visiting us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Remember, you can find links to all of our accounts by visiting our website, dynamicduel.com. And again, please follow us on Instagram. Specifically, we're trying to get to 1,000 followers. Like, I know a ton of other shitty accounts that have way more followers than us. Yeah, I don't get it. What the hell? <laughs> we're not social media incorrectly. I guess not. What, what are we doing wrong? But also on our website, dynamicduel.com, you can find a link to our merch store where we sell t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more with our Dynamic Duel no prize artwork. Now, Jonathan, who are you drawing for this episode? I'm actually drawing a character that I've wanted to draw for a long time, Dr. Doom. Oh, yeah? He's not really related to this film, but I mean, sort of. He wears armor. Well, in the comics, he later became Iron Man after Tony Stark died. Well, that's right. The infamous Iron Man, is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's a tie-in. It works. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that. Our next episode will be a dual episode where we pit Nick Fury, who played a role in this film, against Rick Flagg, who is the lead member of the Suicide Squad. Right, Rick Flagg is played by Joel Kinnaman in David Ayer's Suicide Squad film and also the upcoming James Gunn, The Suicide Squad. They're both like badass soldier types with important legacies and leadership roles. I think it'll be a fun match, so tune into that next week. Until then, we want to remind everyone to please subscribe to our show if you haven't already. Please leave a rating or review on your platform of choice. And of course, sharing the show on social media or in person is also a big help for us. But that does it for this episode. We want to give a big thanks to our executive producers, Ken Johnson, Jace Crump, John Starosky, John Spees, Zachary Hepburn, and John Beccinina for helping make this podcast possible. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away! True believers.